0: The first time I heard today's guest speak was at a women's summit for financial advisors a few years ago. I attended a breakout session where my guest talked about the power of marketing and communication. I remember being blown away by her confidence, poise, and ability to command the attention of a room. I am grateful for this opportunity to connect with Sarah Samuels. Sarah is a former practicing attorney turned wealth management advisor, who specializes in working with emerging affluent professionals and business owners. Sarah's mission is to reduce economic vulnerability and build enough wealth for her clients to live their very best lives now and in the future through financial inspiration. Join us as we talk about taking risks, the importance of advocating for yourself, and how to succeed in a male-dominated career. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. I am grateful for you being here today. And I'm curious, Sarah, what prompted you to switch careers from being an attorney to being a wealth management advisor?
1: Well, I guess the story starts a little bit before that. I am come from a family of business owners. My mom ran her own business as a photographer, massage therapist. My family had a joy business. And, you know, having seen both the ups and downs of being child, grandchild of business owners, I kind of wanted to go the other way. And so I went into what I thought would be a quote unquote stable profession and choosing first I was pre-med and then ended up becoming an attorney. So two of them were considered stable careers, if you will. And then in entering them, and that's actually brought me to Chicago in the first place. I moved to your site and scene for law school. Once I actually practiced law, and for those who work with attorneys or have attorneys in their family, or maybe they were one themselves, is that you, know, you go with the intention of being an advocate. And I was a litigator, defense litigator, so it wasn't criminal, but you know, the, oftentimes it's much more adversarial. And the farther I went into it, the more I realized that, one, I really truly wanted to be an advocate for myself and for others as well as being able to maybe name a little bit more my own way. So once I started working for someone, I was like, ooh, don't enjoy that as much. Let me see what this other thing looks like. And then also recognizing that not everybody whose employers are actually really good business owners or treat their employees well, and treat them truly as employees rather than team members. So in doing so for about four years, I was actually a client at Northwestern Rachel. And my advisor said to me, you know, have you ever thought about doing what I do? And at the time I said, I don't really actually know what you do, but it was a really great opportunity for me to at least consider something where potentially advocacy comes in a different form. And after really understanding and appreciating what it really truly means that it's so much more about relationship building and intention driving and helping people change and shift their relationship and paradigm around Money, which really often is about confidence, if you ask me, it really changed the way I thought about things. And I took a massive leap of faith and started my practice in July 2008. Great time to start in financial planning, by the way.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that that was a very scary time to start in financial planning. How did you navigate those uncertain waters during the 2008 2009 years? Well, part of
1: it was by having a great support system both personally as well as professionally. One of the unique things I think about the financial services world, especially where I've been growing and living and surviving and thriving, is that it's a community that is more about giving a hand up than giving a hand out. And because the competitive nature isn't necessarily about, I have to do better than you by taking your clients. It's more about how we can all do better by helping each other be advocates for each other, apprenticeship, that was a great foundation. Secondly, I just have a lot of grit and a lot of perseverance. And I want to be successful in anything I do, but especially where I feel that it's a great fit. And when I started, I wasn't sure, but as I really started sitting down with people and saw how little financial planning and not being embarrassed about it, and especially with women, and minorities, and people of color, people who maybe have been institutionally but not financially marginalized, how important it is for people like myself to be as a good friend of ours Nicole Stokes would say, be a mirror, not a window.
0: You had mentioned earlier, Sarah, that money is often about confidence. Can you elaborate more on what you mean about money being about confidence?
1: Oftentimes, well, one, money is integrated into every single thing that we do and how much we think about ourselves and about our ability to be able to succeed. And without a solid foundation, there can be one, significant anxiety. Two, if you don't feel you have a place at the table financially, you may not feel like you have a place at the table professionally. And three, I think that because this isn't something that's taught in school, it can feel very foreign with there being a lot of just not necessarily volatility in the market, but volatility in life, confidence in our financial world, meaning having attractive options no matter what happens, being able to say that we can take a leap of faith like myself because we have enough of a financial runway to do so, really breeds confidence. In addition, especially speaking from a female perspective, I've heard some people talk about women think that they need to know 99.97% about something before moving forward, where guys are like, oh, I know 30%, I'm good. And so for me, I wanted to shift that. I spent a lot of time with my clients talking about the fact that behind closed doors, a lot of us don't actually know much about this stuff. And so it's a no judgment zone in my office. It's a no apologies for what you didn't know coming into this. And it's a no excuses if we do have the desire to make a difference. So at some point, you do have to take personal responsibility as well. So that confidence comes from knowledge, from ownership, from education, and from integrating it and taking out some of that emotion and shame that often comes around talking or thinking or being boastful around money. And it's not about being boastful. It really truly is that determination between confidence and boasting.
0: There are so many beliefs that come up for people when they start talking about money and we all have different relationships with money and sometimes there isn't enough conversation around money and that can limit our knowledge and definitely our confidence when it comes to understanding finances and growing our finances. Sarah, you mentioned you had financial savings to take a leap of faith. Let's talk more about taking calculated risk. First, what is a calculated risk? And second, what are your thoughts around taking calculated risk? Sure. You mentioned
1: about this relationship. And I do think that our relationship with money never starts with us. It starts usually multiple generations before us. So recognizing that maybe you're great, feeling about money comes because your grandparents had a great relationship with money and now you've had that positive mobility or if they're always thinking that the other shoe is going to drop then that will inform your so there is a shifting that does have to come just like my mom and grandma both happen to be tend to be overweight and so i have to be aware of that and i have an inclination so i think understanding even inclinations in your own feelings around money and coming from parents and grandparents has a lot of impact on how you feel too. To me, the definition of calculated risk is being informed about the potential obstacles and the opportunities in a situation and eventually just moving forward, right? Leap of faith at some point because there is this whole concept of paralysis by analysis. And at some point you have to say, Is the risk worth it? And in my opinion, I've never, and I'd be interested, Kristen, to know how you feel about this, but when I think about regret, most of my regrets have never come from actions I've taken. They've come from inaction or things that I didn't say or wish I had done. Not the things that I did. The things I did, then I have the opportunity for reflection and growth. So to me, calculated risk is once you've weighed it, you just got to move forward. And and that's really what I've done. Moving to Chicago for law school. Hey, no one's going to blame you for moving for law school, right? Leaving a six-figure salary for 100% commission. Guess what? Plan B, I could have gone back and been a miserable attorney. I already knew how to do that one really well. Think about it. Even jumping on an airplane. You know, I did the research. Guess what? It's way more easy to die in a car accident than jumping on an airplane. And I wanted to feel that exhilarating feeling there is this really unique kind of juxtaposition of risk, but with some research. Risk with research is probably a good way to think about calculated
0: risk. And I agree with you, Sarah. Regret for me comes from all the things I wish I would have done. I wish I would have done it sooner. And it's often because I'm overthinking and it's all the what ifs. And I do a really good job of thinking about the obstacles and all the things that can go wrong. I have an opportunity to think more about the opportunities and what could actually go right. And, That's one of the things that I work on with my coaching clients is when they're in a position to take a risk or they're feeling fear is to explore both what's the best that can happen and what's the worst that can happen. And when you're taking a look at both options, then you can make an informed decision. And you've done some things, Sarah, where you've taken a lot of action. You've taken a lot of calculated risk. How can people who are listening to this episode learn to take action before they are ready? That's a
1: great, great question. I would
0: say for me,
1: the biggest hurdles have been when I thought I was ready and maybe I wasn't and I still move forward. I think there's a feeling that comes from that, right? At some point, you're like, I think I'm ready. But you're never going to fully know, right? And so you just have to commit. And that could be in your personal life. That could be in, again, we're talking obviously significantly about professional life. But sometimes we just have to move on. I've sometimes in my personal life held on to relationships longer, held on to friendships longer than maybe I should. In my professional life, I typically am pretty good about moving forward pretty quickly. And so sometimes in confidence, and you and I have talked about this, you can have differing levels of confidence in different areas and using that to lean on the areas maybe you're not as confident about. I've had points where I felt really great about where I'm personally, my relationship and my health and everything was, you know, firing in all cylinders. Professionally, I didn't feel it. And so when recognizing that and being able to also not thinking that it's all one thing, Because I think people get caught up in that too and being able to parse out, well, is this just situational or is this actually emotional or is this truly how I'm feeling about things and letting one area of confidence that you may either have or not have serve the other as well. When I look back at the quote unquote risks I've taken, you're never going to be ready. I was never 100% ready, but I was enough. I was maybe 60, 40. and again. If you know you have a plan B through Z that is there and then it's going to give you more chance to say, let's go.
0: I appreciate how you're describing confidence because I often think of confidence as one thing. Like if you're confident, you're confident in all the areas, personally, professionally, financial, health, fitness, et cetera. And Sarah, you raise a great point that we can be confident in one area of our life and growing our confidence in another area of our life. I've always been very impressed with your confidence. What have you done to grow your confidence? What are some recommendations you have to help others grow their confidence?
1: Well, I'll share that it didn't start immediately. I'm from Southern California, and I know this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but imagine a 16-year-old in the mid-90s of Southern California, the height of, you know, all Barbie looking selves, right? And I'm 16, 200 pounds-ish, brunette and smart. So, and moved like 30 times, by the way. So always a new kid. I was teased pretty relentlessly for good portions of my life experiencing that and understanding that oftentimes people tease because of their own insecurities. I was really blessed that I had family that helped me think about confidence and about my attributes differently than just attached to my physicality. And as women, we do attach so much of our confidence to our physicality and not saying that I still don't deal with that. We all have our own issues and body dysmorphia and other things, but when i place so much more of that on my capacity and capability and skill sets as a person as a personhood and really using that to be the trailblazing part of myself and then hey guess what great later on i lost you know 70 pounds and blah 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 and certainly that has helped from some of the outside but it really truly starts within and having people who can see that recognize that lean into that I've been really blessed that I have a lot of people around me and I've always sought out people around me who add in value and also believe in me. And sometimes you need people to believe in you before you believe in yourself. I saw a great article in Vanity Fair about five years about the creator of Ariel Investments. She talks about when the greatest attributes that she feels that she has is that other people saw things in her before she saw it herself. But then when she did though learn to see in herself as well. And so I've been really blessed that I've had other people see that in myself, but at some point you do have to recognize in yourself and move forward as well. And so that's been a huge part of my component of confidence. The other part is the older I've gotten, the more I realize that it really doesn't matter and nobody else is looking at you because they're really also looking at themselves. And so when I stopped worrying as much about what other people thought of me, and started worrying more about how I thought of myself was a really good opportunity. And that's really happened. I'd say, yes, maybe showy in the first five, 10 years. Like with my 30s, I think it was a lot more show than actually truly internally feeling it. And over the last, say, five years being now almost 44, it's really come more around internally emanating that confidence and other people being able to experience it as well. Because
0: our energy speaks well before we do anyway. Absolutely. And I agree with you that your confidence starts within yourself. If we're constantly looking externally for confidence, I think we're going to be disappointed a lot. And our confidence is going to ebb and flow based on other people's responses or perceptions. And so learning to, as you said, stop worrying about what others think and start worrying about what you think is a powerful shift to help grow confidence. There's this great
1: meme. It's this one guy that says happiness on his stomach and the other guy's like, oh my gosh, where did you find that? And the guy that has happiness on his stomach says, I found it inside. Right. And I just love that concept, especially in this last year with our zombie apocalypse 2020, it required and forced us to have a lot more introspection. But where we find happiness, where we look towards others, confidence is really more about self, right? And feeling self-worth and feeling worthy and deserving of what we're given, what we have and what we strive for. And again, going back to that concept of feeling value and worth, confidence sometimes isn't necessarily treated as a positive attribute in certain sectors of the population. And if you can own that and say, this isn't a bad thing that I'm confident or that I feel good about myself and that I value and that I have worth, that's also changing that conversation around things too.
0: Sarah, how do you think confidence has helped you succeed and thrive in a male-dominated career? It's a great question,
1: Kristen. This is my probably second male-dominated career, having been in a journey And actually, I was going to become a sports agent, so I really, truly kind of like to stick in that game, I guess, a little bit. For me, confidence has allowed me to always feel like I have a seat at the table. And because maybe I did come from a male-dominated profession, I come from growing up in sports, which tends to be more of that, do you, be your best self, High heavy work ethic. I was really lucky. I was raised in a fairly matrilineal family where the women always, not always, but typically in my family worked. A lot of them held high degrees, ran our family business. So it really was already a vision of what was possible where my grandpa was actually more of the supportive person in our family household versus being the actual breadwinner. So I knew it was possible. And in fact, I knew it was even not just looked upon, but encouraged in my family to do whatever you possibly could and whatever that pathway led. Because the road was open for what I could accomplish, I didn't know that there was impossibilities other than it was between my own two ears. When you think about moving into a male-dominated profession, I didn't ever even really think about it. I thought it's such a huge opportunity. I was not the Chad and Brads of Northwestern Mutual, you know, or any other financial firm for that matter. There's a million dude advisors. There's only one Sarah Samuels. I love using that. You're like, oh, I have a guy. Cool, because I'm not a guy. Which I heard Dylan Alexander say years ago. And I was like, yep, that's freaking perfect, right? If you think about it, being able to say that we can differentiate ourselves but not be different. Different is, oh, I'm placing myself separate. Differentiating yourself is making sure that you're seen and heard in a unique way. And that's, to me... Confidence in male-dominated is saying I want to lean into the fact that there's only a room out of a hundred eight or ten of us, and I'm going to make a bigger impact because I'm going to be able to be seen and heard more than ninety dudes giving their plastic, you know, card or blah 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 blah. Right, and so that's been huge for me, and it's actually been exciting. And now I see other women and other minorities who are using that as a as a real way to say. Hey, you know what? I may not look like your typical advisor, but isn't that exciting and refreshing? The other part about it is look, every guy is a son of a woman and oftentimes has a wife or a partner or might have daughters. And so be able to be able to show them what is possible for their wives, children, parents who would have hoped that more of us would do this, and also be able to take care of the future generations. That's huge. And last part is money often leaves with the widow from our organizations. And so for me, being able to say to my older clients or to my female clients or to have those relationships with their male husbands and say, I'm with you for a lifetime and hopefully generationally, this is also about the dollars and bills. And that's important too, or dollars and cents, right? I mean, I want to hold all of those because of the relationship. And this is a return on relationship business. And that confidence has allowed me to actually completely be one of, you know, big fish in a small pond, in my opinion, versus one of many fish. I feel like I'm more of like the beta fish amongst goldfish in a great way.
0: You've talked about advocacy and advocating for others and advocating for yourself. How do you think, Sarah, more women can learn to advocate for themselves?
1: Don't think it's a bad word. I coach a lot of my female clients and just clients in general, especially my female clients, on asking for more. I say, You ask for it, I'll help you grow and protect it, right? You have to ask for it. And if we can get over this concept that we, again, don't deserve it or that we shouldn't ask for it, yes, there's, of course, an institutional component of why people of color, women, first generation immigrants make less. So let's not discount that, and especially. Us taping this on Juneteenth, those kind of institutional components, are, they're real. However, it is incumbent upon us to also always be our biggest cheerleader and not feel bad about it. Guys make more half the time because they ask for more, because they feel they deserve it. We have had an institutional, of like, this is not for us. We have to sit in the back and give what we're taking and be so happy for that. Absolutely not. The next generation is about really us truly being the bastion of our own empowerment through our finances, through our profession, and through our sense of selves. And that comes from really truly being our number one. I'm the number one, not because I think that I'm like super, super rock star, but because I've had to, and it's invaluable. And people buy in to people who feel pretty awesome about themselves. So it eventually begets itself. There's a fine line between boastful and confident. But for most people, it didn't take a really lot to get there. And that just comes also through authenticity and being genuine. If you're authentic and genuine and show that you have a beautiful heart and it's coming from a place of care and helping and not self-serving, it's coming from a mission and service standpoint, which is very, very different.
0: And as we start talking about mission and service, could you tell us more about what it means to be a financial inspirer?
1: You know, it's just interesting because I just started banding around like, where do I get inspiration from, right? And what inspires me to move? And again, I think I'm thinking back to the paradigm of, you know, when I think about traditional financial planning or just finance, a lot of it is very fear based. So we tell people, well, if you don't do this, this is going to happen to you versus if you do do this, this is what's possible. And I really wanted to shift that. So when I think about the word and I heard Monica Sinha talk about this, that she really wants her clients to feel inspired to live their best lives. Right. And so I really kind of leaned into that and was like, me too. I want my clients to feel inspired to live their best lives Using intention and actions and financial planning as a process just happens to be this particular one because I think it is such a big thing. And so financial inspiration is, again, about changing that relationship with money and using it as a good thing and not about what it won't allow us to do, but about giving us all that flexibility and attractive options that we all desire in our life. And last part is that, you know, we all want to be remembered for something you ever seen the movie Coco? My biggest takeaway from that is we don't want to be forgotten. And if I can leave behind that, I get to financially inspire communities, whole communities, starting with one person, one family, one business at a time. And even though I don't have children, I'm going to leave something behind for generations beyond me.
0: I've noticed the theme in our conversation you often think about, Sarah, what's possible. You often look at the opportunity versus the obstacle. You often look at what gives you an advantage in your career versus a disadvantage. So I would say uh, your mindset is a huge part of what has helped you get to where you are and where you're going and gonna help you leave that legacy. What is one piece of financial advice you wanna share with our listeners today? And
1: just more and more thing on that mindset, that comes so much from my mom. My mom is a two time stroke, two times stage four metastatic melanoma survivor. She should have died, literally should have died four times. And make me cry. She sees every single day as an opportunity, and so it's such a blessing if you really truly see every day as an opportunity. Believe me, I can get pessimistic about things, and I can look down and have those days and I don't think anything is looking up. But that's really where it comes from. Mindset is everything and all that we do. And when you see it from your child who has had parents who've had health issues or who've lost their jobs or seen what's not possible for them, if their mindset is positive, it really just shifts everything. So as far as one financial piece of advice, I really think it's two. And we've talked about advocate, but advocate for yourself in your career, heavily in your finances. Look, no is my second favorite answer after yes, Kristen, okay? So if you don't ask, you'll never receive. And people like to actually lowball. So guess what? No one wants to give out more money than they're actually gonna offer. But if you don't ask, you'll never even know what's possible and go high. Aim as high as you think. Doesn't sound silly. And if they laugh at you, awesome. Because maybe you put them off track a little bit, right? Like, oh, you're off from 100. What about 150? Well, that's out of the waters there. Okay, cool. Well, then what's the step back that we can actually look at? The second is, man, you need to have a strong foundation. And I really think that understanding that your financial home starts with, I'm not saying having a billion dollars in cash, but have a runway. 25% of all people who make over $100,000 couldn't handle a $2,000 emergency. That's people making a hundred grand, okay? Understand your benefits. If you are self-employed, make sure you have your own benefits. If you're working for an employer, I get it. It feels like, you know, drinking water through a fire hose when they send things every November, right? And you have 50 pages, but then find a relationship that will help you with that. You need to really, one, have ownership over the fact of, What are my health benefits? What are my insurance benefits? And then using leverage and then giving yourself enough time to be able to maybe take some of those calculated risks that we also desire. So one thing is advocate for yourself. And the second is lay a strong foundation.
0: And I remember a leader once shared with me, the answer is always no, unless you ask. And so many of us hold ourselves back from asking, whether it's we fear or we tell ourselves a story or we don't have that confidence. And throughout our discussion today, Sarah, you have inspired us to take calculated risk by looking at both the obstacles and the opportunities to grow your confidence by looking within versus looking without and to step up and advocate for yourself so you can live the life that you desire. Sarah, if our listeners want to learn more about you and the work that you do, where can they connect with you? Awesome. And I'd love to share two
1: things. One, I'm learning to say no a lot to a lot of things so I can say yes to better things. And this great thing my mentor told me, and people have heard me speak. I, almost, I think I say it almost every single one that I do. S-W S-W, SW 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 next. Some will, some won't. So what? Somebody's waiting next. And so just kind of think about it that way, right? It's a great way to position things in our head. And if you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Instagram at Financial Inspirer or you can go to my website, www.sarahnoh, S A R A hyphen samuels.com, or you can also go to www.financialinspirer.com as well.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for your time, your insight, your inspiration today. And with that, Goal Achievers, keep celebrating your weekly wins, noting your lessons learned, and identifying your priorities for next week so you can consistently progress in the direction of your goals. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you are feeling inspired and want to join the Goal Achievers community, visit my website to sign up and get connected. We can also connect socially on Instagram. Follow me at meet Kristen Burke. Links are in the show notes. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this show. Until next time, Goal Achievers, keep progressing towards your goals and celebrate those weekly wins.